Minister, your excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, friends, my name is Henrik Jordal and I'm the director here at the Peace Research Institute Oslo, PRIO. I'm very pleased to wish you a warm welcome to this timely PRIO event on climate change, conflict and Russia's war on Ukraine, consequences for global food security. The backdrop is an already challenging situation with climate change and armed conflict threatening food security in many areas, a situation which has been made significantly worse by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. PRIO is an independent, international and interdisciplinary research institute specializing in peace and conflict research. In our role as a research institution, our primary contribution is the production of rigorous academic analysis. However, our aim is that the effort shall have an impact beyond academia, facilitating knowledge-based policymaking, grounded in information, analysis and facts. In taking stock of the global food insecurity situation and discussing how it relates to climate change and armed conflict, we are privileged to be joined by two leading experts from the UN's Food and Agricultural Organization, Chief Economist Maximo Torero and Head of Office for Emergency and Resilience, Rein Paulsen. We're also very pleased to uh, be joined by Norway's Minister of International Development, Anne Beate Christiansen Kvindegein. On the research side, we are also very well situated with Siri Eriksen, professor at Noragrik, Norwegian University of Life Sciences, and Ida Rudolfsen, senior researcher here at PRIO. And the event will be eminently led by uh, PRIO research professor Halvar Buhaug, who has also then recently received a large European Research Council advance grant to study the consequences of climate change on various societal outcomes. So on that note, uh, Halvar, I shall leave the floor to you and welcome everyone. Thank you, Henrik, um, and war wel welcome to you all. It's great to see such a great uh, turnout on a Thursday morning. Um, I am Halvard Buhog. I am a research professor here at PRIO, and I have the great, great honor of leading uh, this seminar today. Um, as Henrik has already mentioned, we have a fantastic panel, uh, five speakers, um, and I will uh, go through them in the order in which they will hopefully uh, appear. Uh, first of all, as you've heard, uh, we have uh, Maximo Torero. He is the chief economist of the uh, UN Food and Agriculture Organization. He has a PhD from, uh, in economics from UCLA. Uh, he is an active academic with a, with a very impressive publication record, uh, but he also has a long work experience uh, with the FAO, but also with the World Bank and IFPRI, uh, among other institutions. Um, then we have Rein Paulsen. Uh, also from the FAO, uh, he is the director of the Office of Emergencies and Resilience. Um, he is an expert on humanitarian assistance, and he also has a very long and impressive background uh, with OCHA and with, with various humanitarian um, organizations. And then we have the Minister uh, of International Development, Anne Beate Trinreim. Um, uh, among other things, she is responsible in her capacity as minister uh, for coordinating Norwegian development aid with uh, uh, international uh, organizations, including the UN system, uh, also the World Bank, and with overseeing uh, NORAD. Um, she also has long experience in, in uh, working within the F uh, MFA, uh, with the foreign services, uh, and also with um, NORAD. Then we have Siri Eriksen. 
she is a, a, a professor of climate and development at the Norwegian University of Life Sciences at Ås. Uh, she has contributed in her capacity as lead author to various IPCC, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, assessment reports, including most recently the sixth assessment report where she co-authored a chapter on climate resilient development pathways and she also co-authored the summaries, uh, summary for policymakers and uh, the synthesis report. Uh, she is an expert on climate change adaptation, vulnerability and resilience uh, and she is one of the most read and most cited scholar uh, in her field. Lastly, but not least, uh, we have uh, senior researcher Ida Rulovsen from PRIO. Uh, she is an expert on connection between food insecurity, especially food prices, uh, and social instability, including also then the role of civil society in facilitating or curbing social mobilization. She is also a frequent uh, commentator on this topic in the media. Um, well, warm welcome to all of you. Looking forward to, to this uh, conversation. So the way we will do this is that we will first have a brief introduction from our two friends from FAO, uh, Maximo and Rang. Uh, they have promised to spend not more than 12 to 15 minutes jointly. And I will be keeping time. And when we have heard from them, I will call the panel uh, up on stage and then we will uh, start the conversation. And hopefully uh, we also will have an opportunity towards the end uh, to uh, take reactions and comments and questions from the audience. Maximo, the floor is yours. Thank you so much, and it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Minister, for being with us today. So let me set up the stage. Uh, Ryan will go in detail on, on the work we're doing in emergencies. But as it, as it was mentioned, there are key drivers that explain the levels of food insecurity that we have. Those are conflict, slowdowns, and downturns. COVID-19 hit through slowdowns and downturns. And, of course, climate change and climate variability. Climate could have four dimensions, extreme temperatures, flooding, lack of water, variability, and pest and diseases evolution uh, according to, to what happens in climate. And they don't act individually, they act together, and that's the problem. In most of the food crisis countries, you will have more than one of those drivers that is affecting food insecurity. Now, what we have seen in terms of evolution of prices can be shown in this graph, and you will see that we had a previous crisis that were higher than the ones today. But this is a very important crisis, is the price of, of fertilizers in, in red, you have in blue the price of energy, and then you have the cereal prices. What we are seeing in the last months after the Black Sea Green Initiative is a fall in prices, which is good because the supply restablished and start to move out uh, of, of the Ukraine and Russia Federation, which they represent 30% of the cereals in the world. That's why the chalk in prices. And what you need to understand is that most of this crisis has been created because the export supply of the world is very concentrated. Very few big countries exporting. If something happened to one of those countries, automatically that will exacerbate prices. And that was the case of Ukraine and Russian Federation. And with the addition of fertilizers and natural gas coming especially from Russian Federation and uh, nitrogen, which they are the first exporters of nitrogen in the world. So that's the situation that we are facing. And this exacerbation of prices had a consequence. And that consequence is what we are going to look at. The first one is an increase in the food import bill. The food import bill this year, in 2022, was increasing $188 billion more than the previous year. It moved to $2 trillion of the food import bill in the world. But the important thing to note is that the 62 most vulnerable countries had an increase of in $25 billion of the food import bill. And these are countries that don't have capacity of lending. Most of them are in debt distress. 
countries where you have the biggest numbers of chronic undernourishment. So what to do with that and how we can cope with that is the, is the question. And that's why FAO uh, tried to bring up the idea of the Food Import Financing Facility, which was a facility to try to help these most vulnerable countries to facilitate the increase in the Food Import Bill. We were able to work with the IMF and the IMF implemented that. They call it the Food Crisis Window, but it's still the coverage of countries is a lot smaller than the 62 countries that we identify as the most uh, vulnerable ones. Now, in addition, as I mentioned, uh, there is a, an increase in the input prices. And we develop an index, which is in the right-hand side, and the input prices has increased substantially, mostly driven by fertilizers and by energy prices. That has affected affordability for farmers, especially for farmers that were producing very well, like rice producers, which were producing under good prices because there was enough supplies. And the increase in the fertilizer prices make them not affordable anymore to keep producing, and that led to the reduction of the area planted and to increasing prices that we are seeing today on a topic that had nothing to do with wheat and maize, which was the restriction of, of the war in Ukraine, but was indirectly through the input prices. And that's the challenge that we face. Today, the, the urea prices has fallen. They were up to four times more than they were before the war. Now we are around 1.5 to two times more the price. So the affordability problem for farmers is still extremely relevant. And as a result, the input import bill has increased more than 50%. So we are facing a situation where countries are facing challenges to buy the food they need. And at the same time, that's a food access problem. But we have a problem of input prices, which could create a food availability problem. And that's especially for us, we call it a dark orange light, the case of rice. Wheat, we are in a light orange light because there has been a decline on the stocks if we exclude China over time. And that makes us very close to the 207 situation in terms of available stocks to use ratio. So that's another orange light and also coarse grains because of the droughts that we are facing in key exporting countries like Argentina that could affect the situation in terms of coarse grains in the future. Now, the outcome, we reported 828 million people in chronic undernourishment in 2021. We are adding 10.7, and this is preliminary. We will update this in July because of the war in Ukraine. 222 million people in acute food insecurity. This is a short-term food insecurity, which if you don't take care of that, that could exacerbate and become chronic food insecurity. And extreme poverty has increased and not reduced as we expected. The dotted red line was supposed to be the recovery after COVID-19, but as you can see in the dark red line, the recovery didn't happen. But also inequalities have increased. And this, graph, this shape shows the distribution of the different quartiles of the quintal, sorry, of the population and how they were affected by COVID-19. The bigger the area under the yellow line, the more they were affected. That means inequalities were exacerbated. And that, of course, especially affects gender. And especially in the agricultural sector, the sector that was most affected was uh, the gender sector. This is the, the graphs of the most vulnerable countries. And Rain will elaborate on this. There has been a significant increase in the food insecurity, acute food insecurity in those countries. And that's why the inequalities have increased so much. So just to finalize, the important thing here is that we need to understand that the agricultural sector, the agri-food system, as we call it, is under risk and uncertainties. And those risks and uncertainties are going to affect us all the time because of the way it is structured. So the uncertainties will come through the humanitarian part, which we need to respond immediately. They will come also through the macroeconomic part. Today, one of our concerns is that the interest rate increases in developed countries to reduce the inflation is devaluating the exchange rate of poor countries. 
and they have to buy food. And to buy food, they need dollars. If the currency is weaker, they, their food import bill will increase even more. So we need to be careful on those interlinkages also on the economic side. And that's our major concern this year, assuming that the prices don't go up again and the Black Sea Initiative gets renewed. And all of this is interlinked with what is happening in the agricultural system. And we have, of course, climate change issues and water stress, which is behind the scene in the medium and long term pushing what will be happening. So we need to increase resilience. And increased resilience has two dimensions, capacity of being preventive and capacity of absorption. And we need to be preventive. For that, we need early warning systems. But we also need a capacity of absorption. So if a shock happens, we can absorb that shock and get the minimum cost of it. So let me stop there. And thank you so much. Edain, please uh, continue. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good morning, uh, colleagues. It's a pleasure, pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for the uh, invitation. And thank you, Minister, for joining, uh, joining this morning. So Maximo gave um, a very comprehensive overview of the global situation. Let me focus specifically on what's happening with um, the most vulnerable populations in the world when it comes to acute uh, food uh, insecurity. Um, the key figure that Maximo mentioned was 222 million. Um, the absolute number is concerning in and of itself. The trends over the last few years uh, should be deeply worrying to uh, all of us. And uh, one of the major collaborations in which the Food and Agriculture Organization is involved is the Global Network Against Food Crisis. Um, this network has been tracking, mapping, measuring uh, numbers of people in acute food insecurity since 2016. There's been an 80 percent increase uh, in the absolute number of people in acute food insecurity since 2016 to 2022. The drivers I think we're all familiar with. The largest single factor relates to conflict and violence. But climate issues, the climate crisis, economic downturns, uh, challenges in terms of the wake of the COVID pandemic, all of these things are amplifi uh, amplifying factors in addition to uh, context specific issues as well. So we have an increase, a mushrooming in the absolute number of people in acute food insecurity. We also have an increasing in severity, by which we mean the percentage of the population uh, in food crisis contexts that are suffering from acute food insecurity. And when we talk about acute food insecurity, just to say, I mean, these are terms we can sort of throw out there. But here we're talking about contexts where we have elevated levels of mortality, elevated levels of acute uh, child malnutrition, uh, we have significant challenges in terms of household economies, distressed sale of assets. We're talking about situations that require punctual responses. But they require the, the right type of responses. And I think this is the, the area on which I'd like to focus some comments and uh, indeed has been the focus of many of our discussions uh, with the FAO delegation and Norwegian authorities both yesterday and in, um, in, the, recent, uh, in the recent months. Uh, so having said that the numbers are increasing, uh, it's also clear that we need to try and do things differently. We're all well familiar with this statement of if you keep doing the same things in the same ways and expecting different results, there's a definition for that which I won't, uh, which I won't repeat now. But you'll recall that at the end of last year, when the global humanitarian overview was launched, uh, there were some 340, 339 million people, according to OCHA, that required humanitarian assistance an unprecedented number. An unprecedented appeal was launched to support them. Last year, at the end of last year, that was costed at 51.5 billion US dollars, eye-watering numbers. That number's already increased, uh, I think it's now at just over 54 
billion US dollars. For us as the food and agriculture uh, organization, what's important to recognize is that when it comes to uh, acute food insecurity, these 222 million people to which Maximo uh, referred, more than three quarters of those people live in rural communities. They are directly connected to rural livelihoods for their survival. Agriculture is uh, their lifeblood. This means that the types of responses that are required uh, to change their situation, both in the short term, the medium and longer term, has to revolve around attention to livelihoods uh, and support uh, and agriculture. And indeed, this is one of the key areas on which, as you would expect, the food uh, and agri uh, agriculture organization focuses. So those things may be obvious, and I've thrown out some numbers, but if we look at we see that there's an imbalance, a fairly significant imbalance. This same global network against food crisis to which uh, I referred, and you can see their materials uh, online. We can maybe share the link, uh, uh, the link to the global, uh, global network afterwards. But they've also completed a funding flows analysis, which looks at all of the humanitarian, but also the development official overseas assistance that's going into food crisis context. Um, and it tells us that even though, as I said, more than three quarters of the population in acute food insecurity live in rural areas and are connected to agriculture, only 4% of the humanitarian funding that goes into food crisis context focuses on agricultural issues, right? So we can tell that there's something that is fundamentally uh, in uh, imbalance there. And this is one of the reasons why uh, we're so deeply appreciative for uh, the practical actions also that uh, Norway has been taking uh, recently to provide the right types of resources, to focus on the right types of issues, to allow us to address this imbalance. And I should say, the funding from Norway is vital, it's indispensable. The example which Norway sets uh, is equally important, right? And uh, providing a positive donor influence is uh, significant uh, for us in that regard. I've said something about some numbers, and we can maybe get into this later as well, but just to say, if we come at this from a cost-effectiveness angle and from an accountability to affected populations angle, the arguments just get uh, stronger. Um, already the numbers I've shared and the percentages that I've referred to should provide compelling evidence that we need to do things differently. We need to focus on uh, agriculture as a near-term response as well as a means to move vulnerable households and communities out of this situation of acute uh, food insecurity. It also makes financial sense to do it. Providing time-sensitive agricultural interventions is to 10 times cheaper than providing in-kind assistance, right? And I already talked about this $51.5 billion that was being requested at the end of the year. We cannot, it's not possible to keep sustaining these ballooning uh, emergency requirements. And if the types of interventions we know make sense based on evidence are also more cost-effective, then the arguments become quite uh, compelling. Let me give you one uh, example. I was recently in Afghanistan. One of the many things that, we'll, uh, that uh, FAO has done this last uh, year is to support um, about half the rural population in acute food insecurity with various packages of assistance. One of them is emergency wheat seed. As you know, Afghanistan has gone through three years of drought. This wheat seed package costs $220 million. It uh, 220 US dollars, not $20 million. Uh, 220 US dollars, it allows a family of seven uh, to provide uh, their cereal requirements for seven months. If they had to buy that uh, flour on the market, if it was available and they had money, it would cost four to five times as much. If you had to provide it as international uh, in-kind assistance, it would cost 
uh, eight to ten times as much. It just makes financial sense. I could say a lot more about this. Uh, I'll wrap up now, but thank you so much for your interest. Very much looking forward to the dialogue. Maximo and Ryan, thank you so much for these enlightening, but also very sobering reflections on the topic of today's seminar. Um, and the scale of the challenge here, I think, is really, really hard to grasp. Um, it's a privilege to be able to host uh, a conversation on this topic, to drill a little bit deeper. Uh, I now call on the panel to take their seats, and we will continue our conversation from there. Um, great. Um, Minister, actually, on about that, I think we will go with first names uh, today. Um, I'd like to start with you. Um, what's your take from what we've just heard um, in terms of the challenges, but also potential solutions uh, to, to food insecurity in the world? Um, and uh, if you may also add a little bit on where the Norwegian government and Norway uh, contributes to this from your perspectives. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, first of all, thanks for hosting us. And thank you uh, to Masuman Rain and to FAO for well, for three thing, thing, things, basically. The work you do on the ground, obviously, the operational work, uh, the statistics and the facts uh, that are exquisite, uh, very, very useful in our practical work in, in, in the ministry, uh, but also for being here and telling the story, because I truly feel that for many years this has been a neglect. The, the interlinkages between food security national security i mean this has been an um, uh, neglect neglected neglected to a certain extent um and um right now there is a momentum unfortunately due to what is happening in in the shadow of the illegal uh, illegal war in ukraine uh, there is a momentum to step up uh, my concern is that we will be um focusing too much only on the short-term immediate humanitarian needs. We'd need to do that, obviously, but we also need to use this as uh, an opportunity to think long-term, how to make the system less vulnerable. And that is why, why uh, some of the things you were mentioning here, Ryan, and then, uh, that, that FAO is working on is. Um, so, um, building, I mean, uh, addressing the short-term uh, immediate needs, but not letting off sight how we can use this momentum to build more resilience. And um, um, that is what, I mean, some of you are familiar with the strategy on food security that we have recently launched in, in, in my ministry, uh, painting the way for how we want to address it in Norwegian uh, developmental assistance. Um, uh, but also, you know, telling the story about the, the, the connections between national security, global security, uh, migration, uh, and food security. When I'm at, um, when I meet ministers of agriculture in, uh, in Africa, we don't discuss agronomy, we discuss national security, and they are very specific on that. So, you know, that, that is a story that you're helping to, to tell. Um, I'd like to um, uh, take this opportunity to also uh, launch uh, uh, s some news in terms of uh, additional funding to the FAO. As you're well aware, the Norwegian parliament has stepped up on extraordinary support um, to 
the global south affected by uh, by um, or indirectly affected by the consequences of the war in Ukraine. I'm very very happy that the parliament as a whole, that a broad consensus uh, in the Norwegian parliament was able to step up on uh, support on food security um, in addition to the support package to the Ukraine. And um, as you're well aware, five billion Norwegian crowns um, for addressing humanitarian needs, but also building resilience and food security. And uh, we're uh, putting 250 million of that money on the table for Sfera, which is the emergency fund in FAO. And I know that that will be directed towards seeds, fertilizers, uh, uh, animal feed, uh, and you know, addressing all these things that Rain mentioned. So, um, and I know that money will come to great use. So thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you so much, Annabelle, and that's fantastic news. Also, in light of what we heard earlier about so little of uh, contribution is actually going directly to agricultural uh, interventions. Uh, so this sounds uh, sounds great. Would you have any immediate response? Otherwise, we will uh, continue the conversation. I mean, just v very briefly uh, to say a huge appreciation to uh, Norway for previous support uh, last year, which we programmed quickly. This support comes at a, an indispensable time in the in the fight, and it will be again both for short-term activities and resilience enhancement. So thank you so much. Um, I'd like to follow up on, on uh, something else that you said, uh, Annabelle, namely that uh, there is a concern that there may be too much focus on immediate, immediate needs and that we also need to think more long-term. Um, and this uh, brings me to uh, a point that I would like to discuss a little bit with you, Siri. Um, so global undernourishment and hunger is not really a story about scarcity. It is a story about inequality. Um, you've done extensive research in vulnerable and conflict-affected contexts. How do you see interlinkages between food insecurity and structural uh, development challenges based on your work, but also informed by uh, what we have just heard? Thank you, and thank you for inviting me here. Um, so first of all, we know that regions and populations with considerable development constraints are often the ones that are vulnerable. So, for example, in the context of climate change, the recent IPCC report estimates that 3.3 estimates that to 3.6 billion people live in areas that are highly vulnerable. So, on one hand, that's about a lack of social infrastructure, physical infrastructure, uh, sources of employment, and so on. Uh, but it's also about how vulnerability is exacerbated by inequality and marginalization uh, along several social dimensions, gender, um, income, uh, disability, ethnicity, and so on. That plays out in access to natural resources, to, to land, to irrigation, and so on. But it also plays out in terms of decision-making and patterns of authority. So what decisions can you make, say, if there is a disaster? who is helped and, and who isn't, uh, who's worth saving. Um, and another aspect of this is how it's often about how multiple stresses are creating these uh, vulnerabilities to people's livelihoods. So, um, for example, then conflict, what I've been looking at, for example, um, in Kenya is how conflict impacts on people's vulnerability. So, for example, low-level conflicts. On one hand, you've, you've got sort of the hiking food prices due to the global situation, global uh, insecurity situation, but also local 
conflict situation where you find that people are, um, it means land is, is inaccessible, farmland is inaccessible, so you, you cannot actually go out and farm, grazing land is inaccessible, um, unsafe, businesses have to shut down, um, so many of the multiple sources of income that people have during a crisis become unavailable. Um, and that impacts particularly the marginalized uh, groups first. An interesting issue as well is the interaction with COVID-19 in this context of how um, markets became <laughs> less, uh, well, became more limited um, because due to COVID-19 restrictions, markets were shut down or were limited in, in, in hours that they were allowed to be open. And so trade and interaction, which is an important way of surviving drought and other crises, um, simply became less less feasible. Um, and then um, another aspect is as well is in civil society and how um, development committees or, or peace committees actually couldn't meet physically because you weren't allowed to meet physically. And that has another sort of long-term effect on how you, you manage security and, and uh, reduce vulnerability. Um, of course, my research looks at the intersection with climate change. Um, and I just wanted to draw on uh, a couple of findings from the, the recent synthesis report that was launched last week, which is... Yeah, we'll return to that. Thank you so much, Celia. I'm sorry for interrupting you, uh, but we will get back to the topic of climate change very soon. But first, I would like to focus a little bit more uh, still on conflict, which you also mentioned, and we've also heard from others, that that is um, an important driver of food insecurity in the world. Um, I think that's relatively uncontroversial. Uh, but what about the reverse link, Ida? Um, there is this saying that hungry makes angry, and there even is a new word in the Oxford Encyclopedia about hangry, which sort of captures that notion that people get uh, um, angry when they get hungry. Is there such a simple connection between not conflict and food security, but food security leading to conflict and instability? Um, yes, Halvar, thank you for, uh, for that question. I think when we talk about these issues, um, it's um, relatively established that food prices leads to various forms of social conflict. That's um, 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 pretty well known. But there's, I think we often, um, when we discuss food prices, food insecurity and conflict, often food prices and fo or food insecurity are conflated. So. Um, when uh, food prices are increasing, um, especially over time, we have seen various forms of social conflict in uh, a broad range of places around the world. But there's this narrative that we have that this is uh, a hungry, angry crowd, um, out of desperation, kind of the rebellion of the belly type of uh, thing, and the hangry also. Um, I can myself kind of feel annoyed when I'm hungry, but this is not the what we see. So, so there is this assumption that food, when food prices increase, of course that has an effect of food insecurity, especially in um, in uh, low-income countries where um, the cost of food makes up a substantial s share of the household budget. But it's not the most food insecure who engage in conflict over food. So those who are on the brink of starvation that we've talked about already spend virtually all their time and energy in, a, in securing their next meal, right? They don't engage in like long-term, not to, 
strip them of agency, but it's kind of like uh, first need first, and then you kind of move on to more long-term perspective of what you um, uh, spend time and energy on. So it's not the case that we see these so-called food riots, uh, a bit contested term, in areas where people are most food insecure. That's not the case. We see food riots in often in urban areas where it's the relatively better off middle class who engage in Yes, because the food prices have increased, but also because of a range of socioeconomic issues and problems that they... So food prices is one of the many causes why people engage in unrest. So it's not the same. So even food prices might increase motivation to engage in various forms of collective action. Uh, that might be true. It's not the most food insecure who uh, partake in these types of, of uh, activities. Yeah? So it's uh, even though it's a very... St I would say food insecurity is mostly... A, um, consequence of conflict, long-term protracted conflict and climate change, and food prices is more of a, a, a shock or a, a initiation of unrest, but not mo amongst those who are mostly food insecure. Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you, Ida. Um, the, uh, the title of the seminar includes uh, Ukraine, and if you focus a little bit on the consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and uh, here's a question or a um, yeah, uh, invi invitation to reflection back to the FAO in particular, perhaps also uh, on Beata. Um, how has that conflict uh, or that war um, affected uh, uh, food imports dependent countries, especially those who have been uh, dependent on food imports from Ukraine and or from Russia? Um, and how has the FAO responded to this increasing challenge? You alluded to that a little bit in your introductory remarks, but if you would like to add anything, I'd be very keen to hear. Uh, sure. So we need to understand first that what you were saying is perfectly correct. The, the most food insecure are silent. And the increases in prices that we see at the global level is affecting the whole world. It's not only affecting the most food insecure. So they go to even extreme situations. But what happened with the war? What, first, before the war, prices were already going up. And they were going up because of the recovery of COVID-19 and the expansion in demand through the support of governments. What the war did is exacerbate the situation even more. And that's why we had the highest ever price in the FAO food price index in March. Since then, we have seen a decline in the FAO food price index, but prices are still higher than before COVID-19. They are similar to before the war input prices, which are also affected because Russian Federation was a key supplier of fertilizers, had been increasing substantially, four times their levels, and right now they are between 1.5 to 2 point points, uh, the levels before. So those were the two sources of the problems, exacerbation of prices and increasing input prices, substantial increasing input prices. And that affects all the countries which depend on those imports, not only on the food, on the wheat and, and, and coarse grains, but also on the inputs. On the wheat and coarse grains, we found that there were around 62 countries that depended significantly on the imports of Ukraine. But we need to understand that that was also a photograph telling us how little resilient they were, and they were focusing most of the imports from one or two countries. When resilience means that they have to diversify the sources of inputs, that does not mean that you buy from the cheapest. You can buy from the cheapest, but you have trade partnerships with others, and you need to diversify your own local production. That, that's what resilience means. So that was also a call of attention saying, okay, and FAO did a report on this before uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, the resilience uh, work that we did uh, uh, for the SOFAP, which were, we were showing that already, and then the shock happens. No? So, so I think uh, we normally are, are misled by 
by saying that Sub-Saharan Africa was the most affected. And that's not the case. Sub-Saharan Africa eats white maize, uh, eats cassava, rice. Rice is really important for Sub-Saharan Africa. Northern Africa was affected and some Asia countries. Uh, but of course, the inputs affected everybody. And that's the, the major concern right now. Thanks, that was uh, an excellent and important uh, uh, clarification. Um, we also have a third element in this uh, conversation today, not only food insecurity in itself or the contributions of conflict to food insecurity, but also climate change as an additional hazard, if you like. And I interrupted you, Sidi, <laughs> uh, a few minutes ago, um, but I invite you now to reflect a little bit further based on your work within the IPCC, for example, on uh, important impacts of climate change on uh, food insecurity. What does science tell about that now and likely future changes? And also, what is climate resilient development and how can we achieve that? Thank you. Uh, those are important and long questions. Um, in, two in two minutes. Okay. Okay. So, uh, First, what we're uh, seeing is that climate change has reduced food security and water availability. It's, it's slowed agricultural production, especially in mid-latitude and low-latitude regions. Um, importantly, what we see with climate change is, is that risks become increasingly complex, uh, compound, cascading across regions and sectors, become increasingly hard to manage. Um, so. It has to do with how production is uh, impacted, how livelihoods are impacted more widely, how extremes impact, you know, like hot extremes, droughts, floods, and so on, impact health, impact property, and so on. Okay, so what is climate resilient? Uh, climate resilient development and why? So one of the key findings is that these more systemic and complex problems require more holistic solutions where climate resilient development is the way that you integrate mitigation and adaptation to support sustainable development for all. So we know that we have that many options, many feasible and effective adaptation and mitigation options exist, though they vary and the prospects vary between different regions and population groups. We also know that the longer we delay, the fewer options are available, both for adaptation, for mitigation, and for development. And that's why it's urgent to actually set in motion more holistic types of development that integrate both inter um, adaptation and mitigation. Uh, and importantly, then, equity is a key point to how you actually do this. It has to do with inclusive governance. It has to do with drawing on multiple knowledges. It has to do with rights-based approaches of all these groups previously mentioned as marginalized, um, you know, based on gender, based on disability age, um, indigenous groups, and so on. Um, one of the reasons why it's so urgent and why is, is that we are increasingly hitting adaptation limits. So we cannot adapt our way out of climate change. There's no place in this world that can adapt its way out of climate change. And those limits are increasingly being hit the warmer it gets. So even now, even effective adaptation limits cannot prevent all negative uh, effects of climate change. And those negative effects affect food security. They, they affect hunger. They um, affect people's quality of life. Um, so therefore, it is urgent that we both mitigate 
and adapt. But the way that we do it has to be then done in particular ways that across sectors, that cross timescales, um, that are inclusive, have inclusive means of, of governance and so on. So we actually know quite a lot about the enablers and it's, it's urgent then to put some of these enablers into place. So it's not just about the options themselves, but putting the enablers into place to, to, um, to shift onto those more climate resilient development pathways. Thanks, Siri. Um, Anna Berta, um, in what ways uh, does climate change feature into the planning of Norwegian development aid generally and uh, food aid specifically, um, if that differs? Uh, uh, thanks for asking that question. Uh, and I'm happy, you know, well, um, Siri mentioned that we are, we are reaching the limits uh, in terms of uh, how far adaptation can take us. But there is still so much we can do in terms of adaptation. And that is why, uh, you know, for example, African countries are so vocal in climate negotiations to make sure that climate financing does not only go to mitigation efforts, but also to adaptation efforts. And Norway is very much taking that on board in our strategies. So. Uh, this strategy I was mentioning earlier on, on uh, food security and development policies is focusing on adaptation measures in well, food production uh, activities. Uh, and there is, because, it, I mean, we have the technologies. There's so much we can do. We just need to get it out there. It's all about management of water. It's about uh, using, uh, using new seeds that are more uh, adapted to, to, to drought or, or floods. I mean, we have so much available knowledge. So that's sort of at least some good news, Siri. Um, can I just very quickly also comment on uh, the Ukrainian link? Because your question was limited to the grains. But we need to talk more about the fertilizers, which is also very much affected by, by the war. You know, the minerals for production of of fertilizers uh, very much comes from Russia and Ukraine. And due to uh, the prices of fertilizer now, uh, the WFP has, at least my numbers come from the WFP, uh, are predicting a 20% decline in uh, agricultural output on the African continent. I'm looking at you and hope you can confirm these numbers because it's quite staggering because a lot of the production on the African continent, it, it, it is it, 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 the food there is produced uh, very much by small-scale producers. They do not have access or they can't afford fertilizer. Uh, soil in Africa is degraded. Without fertilizer, the output will be, I mean, and that's why I'm stressing again, we need to think, uh, you know, one harvest, two harvest, three harvests ahead. And, and that's also why investing in uh, fertilizer is so important. And I know that Sverdat is doing that. Let me let me just bring this point up because it's important. Uh, I think what you raised about fertilizer is extremely important. Uh, the numbers that WFP are using come from Grow Intelligence. They don't come from WFP. WFP uses them. You are completely right. They report it as their numbers. But there is a challenge with those numbers. Um, and we have alerted them about this, is that they assume the same response rate across the world to be one coefficient, which is wrong. So basically what they are saying is that if I reduce X amounts of NPK in, in one place, area will be the same in the US than in any African country. And that creates a, a concern. But the point that you are raising is completely correct. Uh, Africa imports 3% of the fertilizers in the world. So any change in that small amount has a huge impact for security. 
okay? But it depends area by area, and we are working intensively to try to come with new numbers. But for every piece of area, every piece of country, you have to have a crop model, soil data information to be able to come up with that yield. So, so we need to, um, uh, and we keep urging that let's 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 be very careful with with those numbers because it, it could create uh, a lot of problems in terms of information. But at the same time, that does not mean, as you correctly mentioned, that we should minimize uh, the impact that this could create. Thank you. And can I just follow up on that? Because you mentioned soil health and soil data. And that's also something that we're investing in now. Because if we get good data on the soil quality in these countries, we can also tailor make make sure that the fertilizers needed are tailor-made to the specific needs uh, in African countries. And that's a great investment that Norway is participating in at the moment with FAO. Uh, because not only will that increase the yields of the production, it, it's, it's, it will also reduce uh, pollution and you know negative effects of using mineral fertilizers. So it's it's great for climate and environment and great for food security. Great. Um, very quickly from Siri. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, two things I wanted to to follow up uh, briefly. Thank you for mentioning adaptation finance. Um, important there is uh, more finance going to fossil fuel than there is to climate measures and there's much more going to mitigation than there is to adaptation and there's a growing adaptation gap and that gap particularly affects vulnerable regions so that's why adaptation finance is particularly important um, I also wanted to mention in the context of equity that many of these measures that are feasible and effective that you've mentioned here become even more effective when they're integrated with social protection and redistributive policies. So that's one of the robust findings from the recent IPCC report. Thanks. Thank you. I just wanted to briefly also uh, emphasize the importance of uh, fertilizer. I mean, also in terms of uh, third order, after the Russian invasion, the third order effects that we saw in many uh, countries uh, around the world. So normally, or very roughly speaking, we would say that increasing food prices um, uh, leads to various forms of conflict uh, amongst consumers, right? And then that producers would engage in various forms of conflict when they get, uh, when food prices go down, because they get uh, less income for their, for their products. But now we kind of see with the fertilizers, it's so more expensive to to keep up the same amount of production of food. We have both consumers and producers pro protesting at the same time. So it's kind of a unique situation that we're seeing. So many people are protesting over future loss of income that it has not. So it's this prospective uh, reason to also in it, um, to protest or to, to, to uh, voice concern. So that's like a, a dual process that we're seeing now. That's so, yeah. So I agree that fertilizers also is a very important aspect of this of this crisis that we've seen, yeah. Thanks. Can I add something briefly? No, uh, I, I think the the fact that you, as the Minister of Agriculture, are bringing the linkages between agriculture and, and climate change is central, because agriculture generates significant amount of emissions uh, to the to the climate, greenhouse gas emissions, and and also methane, especially, no, and it's thirty eight percent of of the emissions. Uh, but at the same time, it's a sector which could be the most affected because of the climate issues. So creating and looking at it not in silos is essential. Uh, and we normally look at climate on one side and we look at agriculture. That's why your strategy is so good because it brings both things together. And we need to understand the trade-offs because we want to feed people also. And feeding people and increasing production could have an effect over climate 
through emissions and over land and water. So it's really important to understand the interlinkages between them. That is an extremely important uh, uh, point, I think, having an, a holistic approach to this. Uh, we will very, uh, very shortly um, encourage and invite reactions from the audience, but I will uh, have one last question for whomever wants to respond in 30 seconds. Good luck. Um, are there any or what are key knowledge gaps in this field? And do you see a room for peace and conflict research? We are at PRIO, the Peace Research Institute, to contribute. And if so, how? If you need uh, some time to think, we could also take questions for, from the audience and you can get back to this question towards the end. But if uh, anyone has an immediate uh, thought, um, please go ahead. Uh, I can go very quickly. For me, two missing things is understanding these trade-offs because we are operating in a black box. We know where we want to end, both in climate and, and, and food, but we don't know what are the consequences of our actions to end there. Mm -hmm. And understanding those pathways, which is part of the transformation pathways of the Food System Summit, I think will be very important. And, and the second, very briefly, on, on, of course, peace and conflict has to play a crucial role because conflict is a major driver you know, on the food crisis countries, in the areas within countries where we have food crisis. And that is why foreign affairs also needs to be involved in, in these type of discussions. And may maybe just five seconds on the end. I mean, the peace and conflict side, especially if we understand conflict in a broader sense, right? And we look at the important role that local conflict, particularly over access to resources, plays when it comes to drivers of acute food insecurity. I mean, this, you know, often, uh, often there's an instinctive reaction that we talk about sort of interstate conflict or conflict at a large scale, which of course is important, but you know, this driver of localized conflict and what it means for the strategies that FAO and others put in place to help uh, adapt livelihoods and allow for integrated management of these key resources is indispensable. Again, this is why it's a nonsense to look at humanitarian responses distinct or separate from what we need to do over the medium and longer term. Sorry, nonsense was a strong word. <laughs> Thank you so much. And you actually, both of you, uh, uh, touched a little bit on a recent trend in, in, in academic research in our field, if I may say so, which is not only to explore and, and, and try to understand implications of climate change or, or conflict on food security, but also to explore further consequences or responses to climate change on, on human security and on, on, on sustainable development. Um, Time flies. Uh, we have a few minutes. Uh, if anyone in the audience would like to raise a question or an uh, a comment, uh, please uh, raise your hand uh, and identify yourself. Um, uh, identify your target, if I may say, uh, and try to uh, be brief in order to allow multiple questions. Anyone? Hi, uh, my name is Will Woolley. I'm a journalist with DevEx. Um, I was a bit surprised to hear the um, FAO disputing the WFP's figures on fertilizer that the government minister was 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 citing. Um, I mean, could you just go into a bit more detail on why that sort of um, why that's happened, and, and how does that feel for you, as someone who directs policy, that you're getting um, potentially inaccurate figures from you know a UN agency? No, it's not the. I am not disputing the ministry at all. No, the problem is that, um, you know, uh, there are agencies and it's not WFP also, this is grow intelligence, this is not a WFP number. And the problem is that, you know, you can create uh, numbers which are simplified so that you can come out with a number. Uh, and that number could create an impact and agencies could pick that number because they think it's useful to show the potential significant impact of, of a policy or a problem, in this case, access to fertilizers. The, the point that I want to raise is that 
those things cannot be oversimplified. Those things are complex to measure uh, and they require significant modeling tools behind. And we need to be careful because if not, we could create, of course, ministries, not only you, many ministries in the world are using it. Even the US were using it and the, and the state secretary said, no, I am not going to. So, so again, we need to be careful with, with this. And that's part of our job. Uh, so it's not going against WFP or anything. It's just saying, let's be careful with the numbers because we can create decisions which not necessarily are uh, the ones that should be done. Must understand, 3% of the fertilizers in the world go to Africa, imported, okay? Most of it is for cash crops, not for food. So coffee, tea, and so on. So, so, so we need to have all those dimensions and the heterogeneity of, of the region to be able to capture those type of impacts. Even they went farther, uh, not WFP, but this agency, and they linked that to food security and to nutrition, which is a very complex jump from production to, to nutrition, okay? So, so I think the only thing I wanted to say, and, and apologies if I, but, but I, I think it's important for us to, to raise those issues because we need to have uh, the best possible numbers. And normally the numbers are not perfect in most of the cases, uh, even the ones that we produce, but as much as we can be careful with that, it's really, really important. Can I just add, um, uh, uh, I, I picked up the numbers from colleagues at the WFP, so I wasn't sure where the numbers originated from, just to say that, so I, I don't feel misled in any way. Um, and the point stands, uh, fertilizer is, I mean, um, whether it's 20 or maybe in some areas higher, in other areas lower, it, the, the, the point stands. Uh, access to fertilizer is a huge concern. Um, I met recently with uh, coffee produce, small-scale coffee producers in Kenya, you know, who could say that due to climate and uh, expensive fertilizer, um, uh, their main income from coffee production was almost eliminated. I mean, it's, it's, it's really affecting livelihood. When I speak to colleagues in, in the government of Malawi, we know how, I mean, and, and this is a political issue as well, because uh, in many African countries, they have subsidized programs for fertilizers. So it really creates um, uh, political uh, concerns when they are not able to provide fertilizers for their farmers. So, so the point stands. Thanks. Thanks a lot to both of you for responding and to the question. Um, we have time for one more, if there is anyone. Um, there is one in the back. Hi, I'm from NRK. I'm just wondering, um, just out of curiosity, there's been some talk about um, what has been referred to as, I guess, carbon farming. So kind of using farming methods to um, lock in um, carbon from the air, kind of emission issues, stuff like that. I mean, to what extent do you see that as changing the farming methods um, as a kind of climate solution, but also a solution for food insecurity? Is, is that... A, a big opportunity, a possibility, or is it just something that is more of a kind of a buzz, uh, buzz topic? Would you Can like I to go first? Quickly respond. I'm not. I mean, uh, the way I see it, uh, any kind of farming is uh, carbon farming. Uh, photo is is that is that the same word in English? Photosynthesis. Photosynthesis is carbon farming. So, you know, all kinds of farming, yes, please, good for the environment, good for the climate. <laughs> Sorry, that was a, a very unprofessional answer, but <laughs> any experts? <laughs> any uh, professional answer? Um, well, thanks for the question anyway. I think this is something we need to read up on. Um, uh, 
one last one minute question and answer if uh, no then um, I would like to throw out one final question it's a uh, yes please go ahead a lot of the political momentum this year is around the the kind of the, the bridge channel agenda that's where they're sort of you've got the June summit in in uh, in June in the summer um, and sort of the agenda is the idea is it kind of takes a while through to cop do you think that there is a bit too much focus on on that agenda at the expense of lower income and food and secure countries you're talking of the stock taking in July the food system summit Oh, uh, no, uh, look, I, I think that uh, what we are observing and the pressure over the IFIs, essentially the World Bank, the IMF, is that they need to find ways in which they can respond to this type of situation in a more efficient and fast way. And they're doing a lot of effort to, to do it, but clearly what has happened in the last years is that we have a coordination failure even among, including us, uh, among the agencies, and that needs to change, no? Uh, and clearly, uh, there was a red line uh, raised on, on, on climate and the importance of climate and how agencies should be part of that. But the, the point to, to raise, I think, is that it's not just climate, it's food security and climate, uh, SDG 2 and 1.5, uh, and all the other SDGs, inequality. So we need to find ways in which we can complement each other so that we can accelerate the process. And each agency has its own role to play. Uh, and I think if you look always at the documents of the creation of the agencies, you see, you will see how smart they were when they created those agencies. Uh, it's incredible, but just reading even the right to food documents already captures many of the things that we are facing today. Uh, so it's important to, to look carefully and to see how we can again go back to the complementarities and synergies and not every agency running its own job. No? Unfortunately, um, our time is up. This is a topic uh, and a conversation that I think we could have had going for a day in parallel sessions, many parallel sessions. Um, thank you everyone in the audience for coming. Thank you to all of the panelists, the minister, the FAO and our academic experts. Please give them a round of applause.